you remember the first time that you recognized that you were thirsty for a better world than this one? Probably you were a kid. Do you remember the first time that you recognized that something was so wrong with the world that it needed to be flipped over and turned upside down in order to be made right? I mean, some of us, because of our family situations or because of um, abuse or sickness or something between mom or a dad, like we learn this lesson very early. Others of us um, maybe have the blessing of stability as parents. I mean, there is something in our fiber as parents, like we try to spare our kids that recognition for as long as possible because we know it's coming. Do you remember how old you were? What happened? Uh... I could tell a few stories. Um, One of them is on my neck. I still bear a scar of almost suffocating to death and a doctor without anesthesia coming by and slicing my throat open and shoving a a plastic tube um, up my neck in order to uh, prevent me from dying on the spot. Like, it's hard to be overconfident that you're going to live forever when you've almost died. We are living in a time where it's hard as a parent or a grandparent to convince your kids that everything is just going to be okay for years and decades and a whole lifetime long. Because it's been okay for so long, right? We've been on a good long run. That's what we used to tell ourselves. That's no longer the case. And in our more philosophical moments, we start asking questions like, Where's God in all this? Does God author these difficult and bad and horrible circumstances? Is he up to something? Does God just allow for these things? And if that's the case, like what is God thinking and why doesn't he break into history more often? Like he seems to in the Bible with such frequency and at least spare his people. What is going on? And not only that, but we all recognize that some of the best people that we know suffer the worst. And sometimes the worst circumstances end up falling on people who are absolutely innocent and don't deserve what life deals them. What is going on with that? Our gospel uh, reading today gets right into the middle of these questions. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, Jesus is making his way toward Jerusalem. And some folks find him and share the latest news flash from Jerusalem with him. Here's what the Bible says. Now there were some present at that time, as Jesus was teaching, who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So many things going on here. Pontius Pilate is the Roman governor. We're under the Roman Empire here. Uh, Jews would regularly go to the temple to make blood sacrifices. And on this particular occasion, Pilate saw fit 
to exact some capital punishment for some reason. The historical details are lost to us. And literally, as people were trying to worship God, the political power, the great power of the world, chose to execute these Galileans. Like, this is a bad situation. This is like if the government burst in the doors of a church or synagogue and decided to either arrest or even worse, execute people on the spot. Like, this is crazy news. Do you know who else is from Galilee? Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth is in Galilee. And when this news flash comes to Jesus about these Galileans who Pilate has just put to death, I mean, people are wondering, how's this Galilean Jesus going to react to this? He doesn't say many bad things about the Roman Empire. Maybe this will get him to support the pro-Jewish cause and go anti-Roman, right? It could be a political thing going on here. Jesus, you're from Galilee. Are you scared this is going to happen to you next? Clearly, Pilate doesn't mind killing Galileans. Here's how Jesus responds. He answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners, worse people than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. Oh, will you read this with me? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. So the question is put to Jesus, why did this horrible thing happen to these seemingly innocent people? What happens, Jesus, when the powerful of the world crush the vulnerable? What happens when injustice happens to some of the people from your own state? What are you going to say about that? Explain this to us. On one level, Jesus does not explain, and he is not going to answer all of our questions, all the horrible questions that I posed just a few minutes ago. But Jesus exposes we tend to break the world up as political people into right and left. And this is what's happening here. Who's right, the Jews or the Romans? Who's better, Biden or Trump? Who's crazier, the Democrats or the Republicans? Jesus never answers these questions or takes a side, which should be a piece of advice to all the rest of us all these years later. But Jesus says this, for everybody, because Jesus doesn't care too much about right and left, Jesus cares about righteousness and wrongness. And everything he says is to try to get people to put their feet on the right path, on God's path, on the path of righteousness, not on a particular political path. And what Jesus says is not just for the Galileans, it's not just for the Romans, it's not just for the Zionists, it's for everybody. He says, but I tell you this, something horrible happened, here's what we need to do. We need to turn around and repent. The typical human answer, why is someone suffering? I mean, there's something deeply wrong in our nature that usually in the back of our head is like, probably they deserved it. Why did my brother get a ticket speeding down Roosevelt Road? Because he's a bad driver. 
and deserved it. Even though I speed down Roosevelt more often than him and have never gotten a ticket. <laughs> like, we make up nonsense like this all the time. Why did this person get audited by the IRS? In the back of our minds, it's like, well, clearly they're up to some financial shenanigans. I always had suspicions about them. Could it be they're the subject of a random IRS audit? Why did I have my throat cut open? Why was my mother hit by a drunk driver when she was four months pregnant for me? Did she deserve it? Maybe she was speeding. She wasn't. She was sleeping on my dad's shoulder. Was not buckled up, thankfully. Telephone pole ended up in the passenger seat. Why was she spared? In the back of our head, we do the reversal too. Oh, that must be a great lady. God must be keeping her alive because she's so special. What about the other woman who died four miles away in a car accident? What does Jesus say about this stuff? You are not going to figure out. This is Jesus' voice. You are not going to figure this out. God holds it all, and I tell you, repent or perish. Jesus doesn't stop here. He brings up another situation, analogous to the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Jesus says this. What about those 18 people who in Jerusalem, when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, construction accident, don't know what was going on here, do you think those 18 people who died were more guilty than everybody else living in Jerusalem? If you will read it aloud again, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. A tower fell and killed 18 people. What does Jesus say about the collateral damage of living in a broken world? Jesus, will you please explain this to us? Why do things like this happen? Can you explain why some people we know contracted COVID and died? And others had zero symptoms? Is that a left-right kind of thing? Can you explain why some people don't work that hard and everything seems to go their way? Or they inherit a vast fortune and other people with creativity and excellence try to start a business and can never break through? Like, what is going on? Jesus is not going to explain these things. He tells us twice, <laughs> repent or perish. Does that sound like good news? Jesus is supposed to be full of good news. Would you like to hear about the repent or the perish part first? <laughs> perish? Always start with the bad news. Okay. Notice Jesus doesn't say repent or go forever to hell. Like, that is not what he says. Sometimes Christians, like, get <laughs> like in trouble for overjudging situations. What does perish mean in the Bible? It means to walk down a path where everything comes to nothing. To live a life where things fray at the seams and gradually come apart so that at the end of your life there's just, meh. That is perishing. It's a life apart from God where everything slowly goes the way of the world. Do you want a life that ends up that way? 
I would like a show of hands. Anybody want a perishing life? <sighs> the only other option Jesus gives is to repent and to keep repenting. So I'm living my life this way. I'm thinking I'm blessed. I got a decent job. I get to be part of a community like this. Two pretty healthy kids. I'm living my life. Something major happens. What does it mean to, to me to repent? To re repent literally means to turn around and start, if you need to, walking exactly the opposite way. One of the things I will confess that I personally feel compelled to repent of is the use of my time. I want, especially during the season of Lent when we're focusing on walking with Jesus all the way to the cross in the empty grave of Easter, more of my time and non-productive silent time needs to go into the hands of God. My constant temptation, it sounds noble, is just to keep applying myself, work hard, do the right stuff, but I'm so dumb that I do too much of that to the point that even as a professional Christian, I can start neglecting listening to the voice of God and trusting him to be God while I'm quiet and do nothing. Like, there's a million different ways to repent. Something, I mean, we just had a pandemic. There's a war going on on the other side of the world. Both of these things should pull us up short and ask of us the question, in light of what is going on in the world, how can I walk more closely with Jesus? How can I personally repent and turn toward him? If you've ever driven down a road in the wrong direction, I mean, sometimes the best way to get your to your actual direction, if you've been going 20 miles the wrong way, is to stop your car, do a U-turn, and start driving backwards. I mean, that is the real meaning of repentance. I mean, some of us probably have a set of habits right now that we need to do a U-turn on. Some of us probably have distractions on our phone that it would do us some beautiful, repentant work to just delete those apps or whatever it is, like off so that they don't distract us and keep us walking in a way that leads to a life that perishes rather than flourishes. There are a million possibilities, as many different possibilities as there are people in the world for how to repent. So that's one question. How do I do it? Here's the even more important question, I think. How do I know if I'm repenting? How do I know if it's working? How do I know, even if I want to turn around and give more of my time to you, Lord, how do I know if it's being effective? Jesus, in this passage, tells one short final story that gives the answer to this. Jesus told them a parable. There was a landowner, and he had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on that tree but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of his vineyard, For three years now, I've been coming to look on this fig tree for fruit, haven't found any, so cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? But sir, the man replied, Leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig around the tree and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, then cut it down. Jesus' intention in speaking these words and in telling this story 
is to, on the one hand, let ourselves off of the blame hook. Why are there difficult circumstances in my life? Am I responsible for every bad thing that enters my sphere of influence or my personal circumstances? And Jesus is saying, no, it's not how it works. That's not why the tower fell on 18 people. It's not why your car didn't start this morning. But Jesus is, while letting us off the blame hook, key making us very firmly and clearly on the guilty hook. Like, we have stuff we need to repent of because which of us is living our life perfectly? There's some kind of Irish proverb that runs something like, if you want to hit a guilty person, just throw a stone into a crowd. You get it? Just, I mean, it's true here too. If I just pitched a rock, it would hit somebody. It doesn't matter who, because we're all guilty of something. And this is Jesus' point. Like, this isn't meant to shame us. It's not meant to level us. It actually puts us on absolutely common ground. You can look any other human being in the eye and sense sisterhood or brotherhood or togetherness that you are in the company of failures. Beloved, chosen, blessed failures. One and all. I take so much comfort in this. Jesus is telling us this. We are not there yet. We are like a tree that is meant to produce incredible, beautiful fruit. Fig trees have big, broad leaves, shade in a dry and dusty land, and they produce a sweet, tasty fruit. This tree in Jesus' story has none of it. Jesus uh, indicates that the landowner in the story both wants more fruit, he wants the tree to be all that it can be, and he also is willing to wait a little longer. And this is the case for all of us. Like, God is so merciful and patient, not just for a week, not just for a year, not just for a decade. God is infinitely patient to wait for us to turn to him, to turn around and repent, to get closer to Jesus, to walk in his footsteps. And what is the proof, the evidence that a person is living their life like this is actually working? In the story, it's the fruit. I'm going to dig a trench around the tree so it can collect a little more water to be nourished. I'm going to fertilize it. You know what fertilizer is in the Bible? Don't say it. It's a bad word. This is God's way. He wants to give us more time, and he is going to use even the fertilizer of our existence to redeem it and nourish us and be the very stuff that can draw us closer to him. And he is going to give us the living water that is the redemptive blood of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to put this in our veins so that some good fruit might come out of our lives Does anybody remember what the fruits of the Spirit are? Good singing. No. No. A fat bank account. No. Volunteering the most hours at church. No. None of those things. By the way, you can fake all of those things. 
right? Especially if you have some vocal talent. You can fake exuberant worship. You can fake writing a check. You can fake putting it in the plate. You can fake showing up at church four days a week. All that stuff is easy. That's not what matters. What matters is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Here's the horrible question. After two years of pandemic living, do you find yourself more patient, more gentle, more self-controlled? Oof, right? Some of us are, because some of us, the Holy Spirit has been probing us on exactly those things. And we have so many people who are not exhibiting those fruits in our workplace or in our family that God is, there are some people I know who the pandemic has created more virtue in their life than ever before. But that's credit to repentance and credit to the Holy Spirit. Because humanly speaking, collectively, we are grumpier, less joyful, less kind, less patient, less loving, more prone to quit, less faithful. That is the way of the world. Jesus' way is something where the world has totally been turned upside down, where even the crap of the world becomes the stuff that God can use to produce the fruit that makes the heart of God so happy to see. And if that is happening in you right now, be of good heart and take courage because you get credit for cooperating with the Holy Spirit, but it's only the Holy Spirit that could have made a person more patient in 2022 than they were in 2017. More faithful, more long-suffering, kinder, more flexible. What would happen, I mean, this is not just personal, this is organizational. What would happen if the government of Russia repented today? Missiles would stop flying. Bombs would stop dropping. There would be more innocent civilians alive on the Ukrainian side of the border. Wouldn't that be amazing? What would happen if Jesus' church in North America repented more deeply today? Do we need to repent collectively? As an, I can tell you one of the things that would happen is we would be less concerned with our inside baseball shenanigans and more concerned with what is on the heart of Jesus, which is the world that doesn't know him yet that really needs to hear some good news. Because the good news is not coming out of MSN. It's not coming on CNN. It's not coming on Fox. Whatever you like to watch, that's not the source of the good news. Nothing would make Jesus happier than to see more things turned upside down. In just a couple weeks, we're going to encounter a story where Jesus entered the temple. I mean, like the church where all the good people were and kicks all the tables exactly upside down to make this precise point. We need to repent. Personally, church-wide, national level, probably even as a human race. I mean, can you imagine what would happen to our globe, to our climate, to our international relations? Like, if we actually repented 
and took God's stewardship of the preciousness of creation seriously? My goodness. We are going to end this service um, yeah, with a time of repentance. Um, there's going to be some music involved. If you're a choir singer or a musician, come on up now. Um, Pastor Jeff is going to help us. The music that is going to guide us comes from a community in France called Taze. They have a very particular kind of music. I like to call it drip irrigation. You know what drip irrigation is? Like instead of like watering a tree with five gallons of water from a hose, drip irrigation just goes like drip, drip, drip for hours. Taze songs are pretty simple, but they're meant to be repeated so that the truth of them like sinks a little deeper down. Um, so we're going to pray. Pastor Jeff is going to lead us in um, first a personal time and then a corporate time. I invite you to stand and let's sing and pray and repent a little bit together.